Scalia is the epitome of a broken clock. He is right sometimes. Um, yeah. Which is frustrating yeah. to say because Scalia is, yeah, a uh, yeah terrible piece of shit. <laughs> he is a, yeah, may he forever roll in his grave. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, one of his other, you know, the, the other good decision I can think of is that case about video games in which basically he said to the state of California that if you want to limit people's access to video games, which are protected under the First Amendment, um, and which are therefore subject to something we call strict scrutiny, uh, which means that you have to have a really fucking damn good reason to want to limit it, and you better do it to the minimum possible to achieve your ends. Yeah. It, it basically, um, if someone has like strict scrutiny on it, it's probably going to be upheld by the Supreme Court because yeah, it, it's exactly. really yeah. rare for them to actually overturn something that there is strict scrutiny on. Yeah. So, um, basically, basically, Scalia said, you know, the 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 state of California said video games uh, cause violence, and that's why we're uh, trying to limit. Uh, young people's access to them. And Scalia's answer to, to that was basically, prove it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, it to which the state of California kind of mumbled and, and really couldn't do much, and then the court proceeded to rule against them. Yeah. Um, and that pretty much put to bed the debate about uh, limiting young people's access to video games, whether, you know, according to whatever fucking definition some government can come up with for what is violent and what is not. Um, so, uh, yeah, two good decisions. That's uh, we can count Riley v. California too. That's the, the, um, fourth amendment one where they, you know, have to actually get a warrant to search your cell phone. They can't just search it under. Right. Yeah. So he like the guys, they actually have seized your cell phone. Therefore they can search it. No, they can't. They have to get a warrant to actually look through your digital devices. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that his uh, best decisions are on the first, second, and fourth amendments, which he, that's a major part of his beginning uh, interpretation in uh, in the Heller decision, actually, where he goes through and says, well, when you say right of the people, throughout the Constitution, when you say right of the people, that means an individual right as opposed to a right of the state, which... Uh, the possession of firearms for the purposes of being in a militia would be a state right and not an individual right. And so he yeah. said that the first and second and fourth amendments, these are rights of the people, um, you know, clearly differentiated from rights of the states. And so for that reason, uh, there is an individual right to uh, bear arms. Now, there are also good historical reasons to think that this was you know the interpretation that the founders had which is what scalia supposedly cared about well, he, in theory an um, originalist he, he thinks yeah that, you know, the, the original constitution was the the best version of it and that all the amendments are kind of bunk well i don't even think he even thought it was the well he probably thought it was the best version but it doesn't even have to be the best version to be you know to conform to originalist theory uh because there's sort this sort of like idea in law, especially among judges, that you have to like separate your own personal views from what you think makes the most sense. Oh, really? Is that um, what Supreme Court justices do? <laughs> that's what they say they do. That's what a lot of judges say they do. And if it helps them sleep at night, then you know it, it's understandable why they do it. Um, hey, sure. But I. Uh, but like you don't have to be you don't have to believe that it's the best version of the constitution to believe that it's the correct way to interpret it yeah yeah that's a good um, way to phrase it you don't have to believe it's the best in order to have you don't have to have your own personal belief that it's like ooh it's the sacrosanct right it's just yeah no this is what the founders intended yeah and there there's a good there's kind of good reason to think that that's a a good way to look at it because because i uh, the Constitution has a system for amend for amendment. I think there's a strong argument to be made that uh, if you're going to interpret the Constitution, then you should interpret it according to like how it was in, like how it was intended when the stuff was written. And if you want to change it, then you should amend it because that's the system you have for changing the Constitution. The system for changing the Constitution does not lie with the courts. I think that's a pretty fair argument, actually. 
uh, I, I think I agree. it's not very yeah i don't think it's very good for running a country i think it's like obvious you know obviously not because we're like we're uber fucked largely because <laughs> of the law <laughs> um but like i absolutely understand where the originalists come from uh and and for me, like I don't subscribe to any particular way of interpreting the Constitution. Other than that, I want it to be used to reduce the amount of d- damage that the state does to people. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's kind of the goal of you know the amendments is that you know as society changes around the Constitution, that we're supposed to be able to pull the Constitution into the modern world. And that's, that's yeah. kind of what like Scalia talks about in Heller too, where he talks about you know that at the time the Constitution was written, that they really did have this idea that, you know, it's, you know, muskets and cannons and stuff like that, where he actually addressed the idea of, you know, like, semi-automatic rifles. Like, they're the yeah. equivalent of what a musket is. It's, you know, it's it's the common, yeah. easily accessible, uh, the, the, the rifle of the people, essentially. So this is the Long Road Podcast. I'm Sasha. I'm Trevor. And we have a guest with us today uh, to talk with us about uh, sort of parts of the festival scene. Uh, this is our buddy Dewey. Hey, yeah. And uh, we're going to be talking for a little while today uh, about a question we've kind of been kicking around for a little bit, um, in part because the the Chaz or uh, the Chop as it's now called, the Capitol Hill Occupied Protest, has been described by a lot of folks, both left-leaning and right-leaning, as sort of a uh, revolutionary or sort of pseudo-revolutionary experience. And I think that what I've heard from a lot of folks who visited, um, you know, you, Sasha, included, that it um feels a bit like a street fair um yeah i've heard people refer to it as kind of this attempt to recreate what like hate ashbury was during the summer of love um and there's been you know some commentary on the idea of like festivals being akin to autonomous zones and so i kind of want to dig into all of that and posit the question really um are festivals revolutionary i i think it's a good question and i would add uh, a second part to that which is um if so or if not um what parts of them are or have the potential to be revolutionary okay um and you know i i haven't been to any festivals myself um it's not it's not really it's not really something that i got into but i have i have a lot of friends you know including including you and dewey that have done it which is um done it uh who 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 attend festivals and who enjoy uh attending and taking part and helping to organize uh festivals and so um i think that's uh the reason why we wanted to talk to people um in this case dewey who have been involved uh in that way i literally tripped and fell into the burning man organization um didn't plan on going or being a part of anything and it just ended up that I was in the right place at the right time and I had Okay, so what did that look like when you um, well, when you tripped and fell and uh, landed in um, what a lot of people kind of see as this um, uh, a revolutionary explosion of artistic creativity uh for me it was it was literally like i had broken my foot and was hanging out with some friends at their earth day tent that they had set up 
and someone came into the tent and he was just bitching burner politics and he said that he had <laughs> built this you know uh, he built an art piece out there the previous year and that had been my first year out there and he was complaining that they wanted him to bring the same piece back and he was like screw that not doing that making it bigger and better and it happened to be oh you're doing something that sounds like it's a lot of carpentry I might be in a full-length cast right now, but when do you start building and how do I get involved? <laughs> so I ended up being that, yeah, I was in a walking cast, you know, with the crew and being one of the only people hauling 12 by 12 glue lambs to build a giant structure out there. Okay, so in your opinion, uh, I guess we're doing still broad strokes at this point, um, is Burning Man a revolutionary experience? No. <laughs> I think what kind that, of an... Well, I think that Burning Man can be whatever, it, especially as big as it is now, it, it can literally be whatever the hell they want it to be. A city of over 60,000 people, you're gonna find out there what you want to find. If you're looking for a religious experience, you'll find that. If you're looking for an artistic experience, I mean, the art out there is phenomenon. Like, if you want to find, you know, just some really good music and have a good rage, that's there too. So, there's, there's a lot of things out there. Um, and I think originally. It was just a group of people who wanted to get together and, and have a party and be able to poke fun at society without actually being under all of the rules that a lot of uh, large-scale events tend to have. Well, and I, I tend to think of festivals as being um, pretty wasteful experiences. I mean, I think of like... Uh, Coachella and the pictures you see afterwards of just these seas of plastic cups and people abandoning their tents and and, and I mean I think that it doesn't Burning Man have this sort of um, you know, the, the leave no trace ethos that it's this um, uh, greener event that's supposed to be more environmentally sustainable <laughs> Burning Man isn't green um <laughs> Leave No Trace is part of the ethos that the Burning Man organization strives extremely hard to fulfill. Um, there are people who do, you know, arm lengths out there and spend months after event cleaning up. But, I mean, if you're there a couple days after event and the uh, bike group, they like pick up all of the extra bikes and it's literally a sea of them. So it's it's not green, but that's not any fault of the organizers. It's the people who come and show up and don't actually pack out everything that they bring in. Well, and I feel that may be just a problem with sort of the festival crew generally. That there's a lot of people who sort of uh walk the walk but don't really or, or talk the talk but don't walk the walk people who end up showing up and being like yeah i'm a hippie i'm a burner i'm a uh, I'm, I'm this you know progressive you know liberal-minded revolutionary type person and i'm <laughs> out here you know just uh raging against the she machine by fighting for my right to party uh, um so <laughs> Ignoring the oxymoron of being liberal and revolutionary, um, <laughs> is that is, is that something that you would say a lot of people who go to festivals um, do? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good question. Do people who attend festivals, especially like Burning Man, think of what they're doing as revolutionary? Probably. But I mean, people who walk down the sidewalk wearing a certain colored shirt think they're being revolutionary at some points. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, I, um, I mean, in my in my 
personal experience, I've seen a lot of folks who um, might make um, comments that are off color or make some comments that are vaguely derogatory towards someone. And when they are called out on it, uh, their response is, well, no. I mean, I go to all these music festivals. You know, I've been to Bonnaroo six times. How dare you think that I'm part of some sort of uh, oppressive systemic issue? Like, I'm such a free spirit. I'm such a uh, open-minded person. I've, uh, you know, gone to all these festivals, done all these drugs, seen all these phenomenal bands. I've, I've lived my life to the fullest. How dare you think I'm one of these? uh cogs in the machine of capitalism and i would argue that if you're not spending three months to six months out of the year making those festival happen you're just paying for a ticket and buying brand new cami gear to go out there then yes yes you are <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay, that, that's a fair point. I mean, this these these aren't cheap experiences people are engaging in. Yeah, they're um, phenomenally expensive. the The folks I've known who have gone out to be part of these uh, festival scenes have either been, um, you know, so kids living in a van or surprisingly wealthy folks who have the funds to just drop off for. A couple months. How how much does it cost to go to Burning Man or or any of these other festivals that we're sort of talking about? Uh, my first year was in 2011, and that year I lived, you know, in Reno. It was, it was close, and I think at that point my ticket for the event was there was like 450 or so with fees okay. and whatnot, maybe 500. And then it's a week out in the desert where you have to be self-sufficient and being from the middle of nowhere out in the Nevada desert, like, I'm like, okay, then that means that I need, you know, a gallon of water for every day. I need to bring food for myself, water and food for whoever is not smart enough to do so because not everybody is from that environment like I am. I think I spent probably close to $1,200 my first year and it's gone up since then. Like, I probably wouldn't have gone after my first year out there, but I've been involved in projects. And my last year that I was there was uh, 2015, and I actually worked for the org. And, you know, I mean, I worked for the org for my ticket and for them to feed me for while I was working. And I still ended up spending probably, again, like 1200 bucks or so. So it's it's not a cheap event. And I think that's kind of the same with a lot of other festivals of if you put in, uh, you know, travel time and expenses and then the fact that you're going to be off for if you don't live in the area, at least two or three weeks, you're you're spending probably at least, you know, you could say anywhere from a thousand to two thousand dollars for any of these events. Well, and, and I imagine that, I mean, you say you're from Reno and there's there's a lot of these, you know, local towns, you know, both down into Nevada and up into Oregon that I know have, uh, you know, revenue streams that are generated by the, the, the hordes of burners coming through their state. And is that is that something that, you know, does, does that help impact or shape the event? I mean, is there sort of a... Uh, buy-in from these towns do they you know have burning man themed stuff or they're not supposed to and if burning man organization feels like it's too close to their original iconography or you know anything that they use to promote themselves they don't they have a whole team of people who try and prevent outside groups from monetizing off of them Okay, well, you mentioned like the the uh, the like, original ethos, and um, I mean, I, I I've been to Burning Man several times. I I know you know the the tenants of Burning Man. There's ten tenants, and they're um, radical self reliance, uh, radical self expression, radical inclusion, 
um, you know, leave no trace. There, there are these uh, elements to it that I think could be seen as, um, as radical ideas. Um, and doesn't that make an event of that type more, uh, I mean, revolutionary, having radical ideas out there? I mean, maybe at the beginning, if people really want to get into the history of Burning Man, you can always look up the Cacophony Society and uh, uh, try to, I guess, there's there's a lot a lot out there on, you know, BurningMan.org and a whole bunch of other places where you can get the history of Burning Man. Probably in the early 90s, it was... Uh, what what did you say either? Fight for your right to party, like that Beastie Boys. Yeah. Lyric. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, I guess, somewhat revolutionary, depending on your definition of it. But it was uh still fighting for your right to be outside of the status quo. I mean, I've heard enough stories of the early burns. Um, I mean, I, I know that it started, like, you know, in San Francisco. It was kind of a big beach party, eventually broken up by the cops, ended up um, moving out toward Nevada, going out into the desert, and uh, trying to find a spot out there. And, but I, I feel like my mental image of these early burns is, uh, you know, kind of uh, like the Manson family sort of stuff. Folks driving around in uh, Jeeps with uh, 50 cows mounted on the back and shooting off fireworks everywhere and taking a bunch <laughs> of acid. And... Not quite. <laughs> right. uh, I, I, I've met some of the founders. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. <laughs> did, 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 they, did they not have acid and 50 cows because if they didn't then i will feel cheated no maybe i mean there's definitely handguns out there and some fireworks i feel cheated <laughs> uh well i i know one of the 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 big concerns right now is that there are um sort of uh, these these Silicon Valley tech bro type people who are I don't know if they've become aware of Burning Man or if it's sort of developed over time, but now they are I guess moving in to Burning Man every year and setting up these you know massive tents where they have sushi and ice cream and uh, you know it, it's kind of this little like uh, Silicon Valley yearly party. And I mean, has that really affected the the original tenets of it? I mean, it seems like it would, of course, but well, again, uh, I I've got a shorter viewpoint on it, even though that I I've met a lot of uh people who do organization stuff in the community. Um, for me seeing like you know 2011 versus my last year like 2016 um there's there's a lot of issues of uh outside groups kind of trying to monetize on it so you see a lot of uh more well-off people hiring companies that are bringing these five-star RVs and like setting up the camp. And then, so then the people who pay for the, the ticket and the experiences just come and play. And I mean, for someone, maybe that's their definition of their experience and what they want to have. But I mean, again, I, I've, I've only been the, the six years, but Besides my first year out there, the least amount of time that I've spent on Playa in a year is three weeks. And the most is nine. I go out there and I work my ass off. It's not a vacation for me. And maybe that's more kind of where I want to narrow this the the question down. Then, um, is this sort of uh, idea that the event is a 
revolutionary thing? Is it sort of a independent interpersonal revolution, or is people just kind of getting a chance to just express their own hedonistic desires free of the constraints society's placed on them? I mean... Well... Yes? Okay. I, I think about, like, the... There, there is definitely a sense when we are taught about the hippie movement, or the, you know, the, I, I guess the, a lot of different elements of both, like, civil rights movement and, like, anti-Vietnam movement kind of get wrapped up inside of this idea of, like, the, the hippies, who are, you know, the, the boomers now, and I feel like a lot of them see that, oh, well, uh, of course I'm progressive. I went to Woodstock. I was there at the Summer of Love. I was, you know, when Hunter S. Thompson was around in Vegas, I was hanging out around there eating acid, too. <laughs> and, and, I, and I feel like a, a lot of that is still this sort of uh, hedonistic self-expression, which I think is, I mean, I think it's good. I think it's in, it, good for people personally to experience that. But, but if you I, show I, up and take a bunch of drugs, is that actually being revolutionary and helping anyone's causes? Yeah, well, exactly. no. I, I think it comes to, in the more, like, political, ideological discussion, I, I think it comes down to the, the division between um, people who, like... People are active activists, I guess we can say, and um, and like lifestyleists. And I think there's. It sounds like there's a lot of overlap with uh, with festivals and, and and lifestyleism. The idea that if you live your life in a particular way, that 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 is revolutionary, um, even if you're not taking any direct political action that might. Uh, make some changes to to the current political order. Well, activists like to party too. Everyone I'm likes sorry? to party. I said activists like to party too. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> well and that's like a, um, I, I've recognized that I think, you know, everywhere I've lived, the the people I've known who have been activists have also enjoyed festivals, enjoyed going out, enjoyed being part of the uh, spectacle of, um, you know, music festivals, of art festivals, uh, ren fairs. I, I think that definitely is something that people uh, generally enjoy. Well, yeah, everybody enjoys that. <laughs> but yeah there is I, I would have to say that there's a lot of overlap and if you're looking at back in the 60s there's a lot of overlap as well because I mean think about who was marching on the streets a lot of people who are in college a lot of uh, younger individuals a lot of people of color marching yeah. for civil rights and yeah but but i wonder about that is is there some element of um when you have sort of the the taste of freedom that you can experience it, personal freedom you know the ability to to sort of reach outside of the the, the boxes you feel constrain you in society uh, is there some element of looking outside of yourself after that? Do you, do you develop that? I, I mean, do, do festivals make people woke? <laughs> I mean, that depends on the individual, doesn't it? I, I don't, I don't think that I am a particularly like a woke individual because I've gone to events. I, I feel like maybe I'm a little bit more situationally aware because I worked for my time in the desert. 
and I've worked for my, I guess, right to go out and, and, and protest when I can. So, okay. Is Burning Man a, a, I guess, is it an apolitical space? Is it sort of this, um, I don't know. It, 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 it's an empty desert. It's it's a it's a tabula rasa. It's an empty slate. Like, is it also a place where there is like no political divide or? Um, it's more so a space where, at least in my experience, um, people go there to be able to forget what's going on in the reality. It's more escapism. Okay. And and it's I mean it's such a big entity. Like I said, like I mean there's burner politics. It's a city of 60,000 people who like spring <laughs> up. And there's, you know, you know, yeah. about 5,000, 8,000 or so that, you know, are, are actually part of the organization and do a shit ton of work and work 6 to 3 months out of the year. Yeah. Doing infrastructure, working with the BLM, working with, you know, local police forces, and then all of the artist groups on top of that that are bringing installations, and it's it's a lot of work. Yeah, and I just want to highlight: um, so, you said the BLM, you mean Bureau of Land Management, right? Uh, correct. Not, not Black Lives Matter. Okay. Bureau of yeah. Land Management, because. Yeah. Uh, Black Rock Desert is, I guess, public land, technically, right? That's what they call it. Yeah, um, for our listeners, there is a bad BLM and there is a good BLM. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can the bad BLM, which is which. <laughs> <laughs> the, the bad BLM is the BLM and the good BLM is just BLM. That That's the easy way to distinguish it. <laughs> but, uh, so the bad BLM is the Bureau of Land Management, which is a federal agency that controls a huge swath of land in rural America, particularly in the West. And there are a bunch of cops, desert cops. Yeah. And I mean, I, I've been to the burn before and I've definitely had run-ins with uh, the BLM before. And um, run-ins, they, you say? Yeah. I had one time where I was passing fruit snacks back and forth to a friend and um, all of a sudden had a flashlight shine in my face and there were these two folks standing there in... Again, this is at, at Burning Man, standing there in uh, full flak jackets, carrying ARs, shining a flashlight in my face and yelling, what the fuck do you have there? And it literally was like, fruit snacks and i just handed it to him i was like do you want one and they scared me for a bit and walked off and it was like okay and i guess that, I mean, that that's definitely part of it too though is that um this is uh, i mean festivals are generally policed spaces they're they're not yeah. these um uh they're not they're, autonomous they're, stones in any sense of the word, there, there. If there's not an actual police force there, then there is hired security there. Yeah. Depending on yeah. where you're at and what festival you're going to, like, I mean, only, only kind of like festival type things that I've been to where there is no sorts of police force or hired security force is like a small rin fair. And then, like, our security force at a smaller Ren Fair is a group of people who volunteered to do it, and mostly their job is to make sure that booths don't get messed with at the end of the night when everyone's gotten. Hmm. But all of the big festivals, like, they if, if they don't have a local police force or, you know, BLM at Burning Man, uh, they have hired security. And a lot of them can't get their licenses and their permits without it. Well, and maybe that's part of it, too, is that these places are generally, I mean, I think uh, almost entirely licensed events. Um, 
when there's, you know, the people are buying land permits, they're, they're renting out the space, they're, you know, getting insurance so that they can make sure they can have events that house, you know, 30 to 80,000 people. Um, I mean, a lot of these are big concert areas. And so they are, uh, a lot of these, you know, especially like music festivals have to, on some level, be cooperative with the, uh, the existing systems of the state. Absolutely. If you try and have an event that's, you know, tens of thousands of people and you're not complying to whatever uh, big gathering laws that are in place in that county, then, you know, it's it's not going to last. You might be able to get away with it for one year, but then you, you can be damn sure that it's not going to happen again. Okay, the large well, congregation of people it has to be secured well what i'm curious about is the um like the the regional burns across the I mean, across the world at this point um are these more are these like independent events are these are these just like you know people trying to recreate the the magic from the the first you know, early burns, or, or are these, you know, are these more or less regulated uh, spaces? Depends on which one you're talking about. <laughs> um, okay. If they are a sanctioned Burning Man regional burn, then yes, the people who are organizing it do work with uh people from the Burning Man organization to ensure that they are upholding the local laws to ensure that they are being safe where they have plenty of, you know, um, medical security and other safety personnel on site. That's, that's absolutely part of being a sanctioned, uh, Burning Man Regional, but again, I haven't been involved in any of them, so I'm, I don't quote me exactly. Like I'm, I'm fairly certain. Like I know that they have to follow what Burning Man Org sets uh, an example for them, and then they do have contact with someone from the Burning Man Org. And um, I only know this vaguely because of one that we tried to set up and ended up not being a sanctioned event. <laughs> And so it just ended up being an, a smaller party of 600 people or so out in the desert. But but even that, though, if you're at a point when you are, uh, I mean, organizing a 600-person event and making sure there's medical, uh, that there is, you know, security, that there is, you know, some sort of way to uh, deal with folks who might be having a bad time due to either, uh, you know, drug use or uh, mental health issues or something like that. I mean, th that's a lot of what we talk about when we talk about mutual aid. We're talking about people being able to just provide for their communities with without some overarching, you know, state stepping in and directing how that should be handled based on sort of a bureaucratic ideal. So, I mean, I, I guess, uh, you know, Sasha, you've been quiet for a little while, but do you think that that's something that is somehow more leaning toward revolutionary uh, fomentation? Can, can you say that again? Uh, it seems to me that a lot of these uh, events, especially when they are sort of smaller events, foster the same sort of um, uh, the, the material organization that we like to see from mutual aid groups. Yeah, so I I think it's something that we actually see in a lot of organization in our society that is not like non-state organization. Um, is we see the blueprints for mutual aid organization. We even see it in like for-profit organizations. You still have workers who are doing most of the work to organize and make things happen. Like, it's not the managers doing that. Um, 
So I see it at every level of our society, but I think that when it comes to festivals, there's sort of this distillation of that reality, which is that for the most part, um, you don't have direct managers. You have people who are volunteering, sometimes paid, but people who are volunteering to organize these things because they want to do it, um, which those are all the same skills that you have when you're organizing mutual aid. Uh, in your own community. So uh, by itself, I don't think that having those skills are revolutionary, but I think that um, from what I've observed, from what I've heard about these sorts of um, events, uh, and, and what I've also observed at places like uh, the Chaz, uh, is that while what's going on in those places is not revolutionary. Not necessarily anyway. Mm -hmm. um, it's laying the groundwork. Um, I, I mean, and I, I have a sense um, when it comes to festivals, there's a point when the state sort of steps in and um, there's, a, there, there's, a, there's a Larry Niven story called Cloak of Anarchy. And uh, it involves the idea of this, um, what was called a, a free park. And it is a, uh, an area that is sort of a, a large park in a, a large city, I believe, uh, I think San Francisco. And it is uh, an area where there are no laws. It is a lawless zone. And... Uh, there are these little autonomous drones that fly around through the area, and uh, the only thing that they enforce is that no violence can be enacted in the zone. And uh, the story basically involves uh, sort of this like, like real anarchist hacker taking one of these drones down and just hacking into it and switching all the drones off. They all fall from the sky. And uh, the park descends into sort of the uh, apocalyptic chaos that a lot of like mainstream media portrays like quote unquote anarchy as. And I guess the, the what I what I want to ask is uh, how much are these sort of um, how, how much are these just like you know freedom parks how how much is it just a place where people can go and play for a little while and pretend to be free where they're actually still constrained inside of this, uh, you know, state-enforced area that is just sort of taking a step back for a second to give people a playpen. Well, I I guess the the only thing we have to resort to here is metaphors, right? Yeah. Um. Like, one of the ways that we, as children, sort of prepare ourselves for, for living in the real world is we play games, right? We're in the playpen. We're in the sandbox. We're in the playground, right? We, we run around. We figure things out. We solve problems. And if our parents fucking let us, we solve interpersonal disputes, too. And sometimes it's violent, but usually it's just kids calling names and eventually... Uh, you know, you figure out that you don't want to be around some people or there's, you know, or there's a fight and then that's over. Well, I'm glad you um, said sandboxes because that's actually, um, uh, years ago I used to be really into the online game slash like 3D forum space, uh, Second Life. Yeah. And uh, my favorite spot in those games <laughs> Hellscape. was... Hellscape. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> digital cyberpunk hellscape. Um... I mean, it, yeah, you want to find a furry orgy in an airship 300 feet above some pyramids, it is the exact place for you. Um, but the, the, there were sandbox levels where people could just kind of go and play around, and um, usually there were no rules. Like, you could like uh, you could make scripts that uh, hurted other people's characters, or um, that would throw people across the map, or something like that. And so you'd be trying to build these, you know, phenomenal creations while at the same time there was, uh, you know, people flying overhead, you know, shooting Dragon Ball Z fireballs back and forth at each other. And 
what ended up happening is the majority of those spaces got closed down because they ended up being too disruptive to the people who were uh, paying to enjoy uh, the digital real estate of Second Life. And I, I wonder how much that has happened to festival scenes. Uh, I'm specifically thinking of a comparison between, say, Burning Man and uh, Rainbow Gathering. What is Rainbow Gathering? Oh, God. Uh... <laughs> I have to hear about it now. It, it, it is... It doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> it's not real. It's, there's nothing there. But I guess synopsis. Uh, that that's that's a true, I guess, kind of loosely organized anarchistical, like I guess, like hippie fest. Okay. Very uh, loosely organized. They they. That sounds like my backyard every weekend. <laughs> but typically, I mean, I mean, rainbow gatherings are all over the world, and they can be anywhere from you know. 50 to a couple thousand people. Yeah, but the sense I get is that there's no hierarchical structure, just a sort of word of mouth of, hey, we're all going to this place. Again, this this doesn't exist. There's no such thing. Okay, okay. <laughs> we'll, 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 stop, we'll stop prying into it. <laughs> uh, 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 if there were such a thing, I would say that there's, you know, small groups of people who... Uh, kind of determine the location and then try to set up a very loose infrastructure. But it is extremely uh, uh, a people policing themselves from from what I have heard if this place was real. <laughs> so <laughs> no such festival. Okay. So that, it doesn't exist. There's no such that's, thing. That's just that's a dream really... that a lot of us hippies have. Doesn't actually exist. It's like we'll the Matrix. Um, <laughs> but so that that's really curious because I haven't really heard much about this kind this kind of festival, Rainbow, and it, I think it gets at you know obviously there there's a diversity of the kinds of festivals that exist, right? Um, and and what even falls under that definition? Well, yeah, but you can either have the, you know these massive city-sized things like Burning Man, or you can have right. you know like uh, Electric Daisy Carnival, which is basically just a giant rave down in Vegas. Isn't isn't I mean, Vegas EDC like is a giant than, rave? Oh yeah, right. Uh, EDC is bigger than Burning Man. That that that's that's more of like a just, that's a huge rave. My right. understanding, uh, uh, that's like, you know, a couple hundred thousand people who are crowded around one of two stages. That's not really, like, I mean, you don't go there and camp there or are there for an extended amount of time other than, like, that night. Yeah. Like, come yeah. back the next the, day. If there's, like, that type of festival, I mean, there there's Ren Fairs, there's, you know, there's street fairs, there's... um. You know, just large concerts. Fair fairs. There's fairs. I mean, and then there's it just kind of, there, there's a, a huge spectrum of festivals, and uh, I mean, there's no way we could do them all justice. I mean, in any sort of conversation we could have about them. Um. Yeah. So, I, I guess I, I still kind of want to keep pulling it back to the same point that we tried to start off on of just. Are, are these things revolutionary? Are they, are are we building I, revolutionary skills or, you know, tactics? Is there, is there yeah. praxis here? Is there? I think those are different, like, those are different questions, right? Yes. Yeah. You know, what is or isn't revolutionary is a really difficult question to answer for almost anything, right? Um Especially given when you look at the history of revolutions, they typically are not, um, like they typically happen all at once, right? There's some triggering event that leads to everything else, but there's a whole lot of stuff that leads to that triggering event. 
Um, I think if you if you listen to our episode on the Russian Revolution, you'll you'll go and see that yeah. oh, actually there were a number of revolution you know revolutions failed revolutions that happened before 1917. You know there was 1905, which was very close, um, and uh, you know there was a revolution before that, which was also strangely socialist, and long before that there were the Decembrists who were um, you know bourgeois revolutionaries, liberals. But when we talk about like, you know, the French Revolution, which I think is kind of like the the, right. the prototypical idea of revolution most people have in their heads, and it was a, a series of revolutions that led to, I mean, like the idea of like you know the the first like you know the the, the big one led to the reign of terror, yeah, which and then had another revolution overthrowing that at some point. Yeah, and you would never have had the Paris Commune if you had not had the original French revolutions, so. It's to 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 say whether something is revolutionary or not is a really hard thing to answer, and and I think we've um a little bit. I I agree. It's definitely a little bit subjective. I, I guess what I'm saying is that we're not going to have a definite answer, even though we're like we're asking the question for a reason. Um, and I think the answer is gonna be it's gonna be complicated it's gonna be well is the event revolutionary no maybe but can it lead you know can it be one of those steps can it be one of those little things that contributes to revolutionary change in the future and i think my answer to that is um yeah actually it can be i'd like to build on that a little bit more i mean they uh when you when you you kind of have this bubble of escapism when there's you know thousands of people getting together to kind of be able to step back from society and have an experience because I mean regardless what experience people are going to these festivals are they will get an an experience and I think that ideas can absolutely be seeded and sowed in those types of environments. But I don't think that any sort of festival is revolutionary on its own, but there's a lot of um, bases for people to, especially if they get involved, I mean, to learn organizational skills. And then also people can learn how to cultivate and actually grow those type of revolutionary ideas in those spaces. Well, and, and I sort of want to make a counterpoint to that. Um, there's a parallel that I've um, drawn for a few years now uh, between uh, Burning Man and Bohemian Grove. And um, uh, Bohemian Grove, for those yeah. uh, listeners who aren't aware, is a... Um, uh, a yearly meetup of the uh, elite of the elite, where they hang out and have a summer camp, and it's rumored to be uh, immensely debaucherous. I mean, picture eyes wide shut style orgies, and um, uh, you know, there's 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 worship to some uh, ancient god Moloch, and there's this massive sacrifice they hold, and. Uh, if you actually, you know, listen to folks who have been there and have been, you know, um, like waiters there, it, it really does sound like it's just like the hyper wealthy all meet up, get shit faced and have sort of a symbolic um, sacrifice of the, the cares of the previous year to, uh, yeah, to, to, to an ancient old god, Moloch, which is, you know, that that's spooky enough. Um but the way this festival started was a group of uh, like San Francisco uh, theater kids who just got together and started having this yearly party and started bringing their wealthy friends and more wealthy friends and more wealthy friends. And then those wealthy friends all kind of grew up and became the, the, the wealthiest of the wealthy. And that event sort of became their yearly get together. And, the networking that occurs there is uh, one of those times where the the hyper wealthy get to rub shoulders with each other, and I, I mean, in theory, 
probably talk about stuff. Uh, as George Carlin once said, if you think the richest people in the world don't get together and talk about things. And so I think that these sort of informal organizations have the ability to grow into a real sort of monumental uh, society-shifting events. And, and I worry about that with Burning Man, which also started as sort of these um, counterculture uh, San Franciscoites, San Franciscans, San Franciscoans. San Franciscoanites, eh. um, San but, Franciscan. Okay, but has now Californian. become Californians. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they're all the same. They're all the same. But but we love you, Californians, but we hate your state. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but has now sort of been, uh, at least in part, co-opted by the the new hyper wealthy coming out of Silicon Valley. And, and it's, you know, there definitely are these massive camps at Burning Man where they have people who are these uh, hyper wealthy folks who are going out to Burning Man and hanging out with each other and, you know, rubbing shoulders. And, of course, probably talking about the things that concern them about their businesses. And, and I wonder how much of uh, co-option of these festivals results in them being not really a space for... Um, I mean, leftist or anarchist uh, social change, but uh, the the concentration of uh, capitalist embodiment. And I, I don't know if I'm even asking a question at this point. I'm, I'm kind of just rambling, but I, I do wonder how much that can be shifted back toward this uh, expression of freedom that a lot of folks see as revolutionary in these festivals. Uh, I, mean, I, I guess you'd have to remember that it's a city of 60,000 people. And even <laughs> if there are a lot of uh, the social elite and the ultra-rich there, there's still a lot of people who are not. Well, and, and you mentioned earlier the kind of distinction between people who are uh, the the folks who dedicate months of their life to build the city and the people who come to just sort of be uh, hedonists. I mean, participants versus uh, oh. people who actually do stuff. Uh, <laughs> I had a better term for it at one point. Trevor knows it. <laughs> he hates when I say it. <laughs> no, it's just participants, but it's just in a very sarcastic tone. <laughs> there, there's participants, and there are participants. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, you know. So with that again, it, it's like you know, you you can have any sort of an event, any sort of a festival, and if you're there to work to see it come to fruition whatever small little part of it may be like if you're there to try and make it better because you were there is different than you're spending a shit ton of money just to be there and to observe and be the asshole who is pissing on or spray painting this $250,000 piece of art that might be out there so doesn't that raise class issues though and there are folks who are the you know the van kids living out there uh, working on this stuff for a few months and then this the people who have their their you know five star rvs moved in and assholes i mean um plug and plays sorry <laughs> <laughs> but but it, 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 is there a significant class divide at uh, at festivals generally, but specifically Burning Man? You've been to DBW. Oh, I've been to DBW. 
Uh, to explain, DPW is Department of Public Works. They are uh, the people who are going to be out there for six months. Not all of them, but they're the ones whose blood, sweat, and tears go into the infrastructure of that place. And are they salty and rude? Yes. Do they have every right to be? You bet your ass they do. They work their <laughs> ass off to make sure that you had a fun time in the desert. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. There, There is a, a classified out there. It is part of the world. Yeah. So it's not... I, I think I, I think that's really that gets sort of at the heart of the yeah. issue of calling it revolutionary. It's like, well, you have these festivals, you have Burning Man, but you have these ideas like radical self-reliance. But um, not everybody has the resources to do that. And, and not everybody has the, and clearly not everybody has the resources to do that in the real world, you know, outside of the festivals. Um, and some people don't have the, the, the drive to do it. I mean, these folks who have for the skills. play camps who are, you know, paying people to bring all their gear there for them and set up a camp for them. They're not self radically, radically self-relying. They're, using money to just have someone else take care of them as they do in the world around them normally. <laughs> I stole the words out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the, to wrap up, um, I, I think there, are, I, I, I want to kind of, we can all walk through what we, what we're taking away from this, but I, I think my, my takeaway from all of this is just that, that there are sufficient skills that people can build and utilize um, while being part of uh, festival culture that um, could be beneficial toward revolutionary actions, but maybe the festivals themselves aren't revolutionary. Sound a little disappointed. I am. No, I am. Cry. He's crying on the inside right now. Hey, if I can go to a red <laughs> fair and swing an axe around and call it revolution, I'm happy. But um... <laughs> yeah, it does sort of feel like that ought to be revolutionary. But um, I, ha I have a suggestion. What you need to do is go to the red fair and swing around a guillotine. <laughs> that doesn't yeah. swing very well. <laughs> Irre irrelevant to my point. <laughs> <laughs> You hey, see, I mean, the, if you the, put a good the mere pre on the it. mere presence, the mere presence of a guillotine establishes revolutionary intent. All you need is a good enough sign. <laughs> if it has dollars, it has enough snark. If it has enough snark in it, that makes Absolutely. it revolutionary. Absolutely. Or if you if you pay enough for it, and a couple of people who are influencers or in the public eye, people will be lining up to put their head in that thing. <laughs> they're revolutionary influencers oh yes yes i like it i like it <laughs> this is an idea this is good um i'll have to i'll have to pass it off to the to the uh antifa department of revolutionary justice but um <laughs> there's a selfie stick inside you know like installed on the side of the gi tomb <laughs> <laughs> and and the courts are just like they're like they're like master chef except it's all in like court language and you have three chefs who decide whether you are going to be you know subjected <laughs> to the guillotine <laughs> for revolutionary justice yeah you know, I you sort know, of that, I feel that, like that, that if you don't have Gordon Ramsay yelling at you that that you're like if you don't have Gordon Ramsay yelling at you that you're like a revisionist sandwich and then you get your head chopped off. It, it was a good enough picture, but was she really thirsty enough? I don't think she was. <laughs> <laughs> All 
All right. Well, that that is the festival that I'm willing to go to. <laughs> I'm prepared for this. All I need is like a guillotine, a selfie stick, some influencers, Gordon Ramsay. And galoshes. Galoshes and like a fuck ton of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I actually am probably uh happy with a uh homemade technical of a jeep wrangler with 50 cal on the back a quarter sheet of acid and the entire mojave desert to set up a compound in. that's all i'm looking for uh <laughs> okay fallout for or fallout I, vegas yeah <laughs> you know all right i can sign on to this but the technical has to be armed with a guillotine <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think we're going to have to close out. We are hitting the hour mark. Um, I, I want to say, uh, Dewey, thanks for coming on today. It was yeah, uh, great picking you. your brain about the uh, Burning Man experience. Yeah, and, that's uh, fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, again, yeah. Uh, this is, as always, the long road. And uh, We yeah, don't we, really know where we're going. <laughs> but it may be into the desert with a guillotine. God, I God, I fucking hope it is. <laughs> and we'll, boy, we will drive along that dusty desert road uh, all together. Yes, we will. <laughs> all right. Thanks again, as always, right. for listening. 